I am Jeff Kleiser, and my partner, Diana Walzak, and I brought the first digital actors to life. We even coined the term synthespians. My name is Jeff Kleiser. I'm a visual effects supervisor. I started out my career at a very young age working with my brother, Randall, who went on to become a film director. He directed Grease and the Blue Lagoon and Flight of the Navigator, maybe 15 different feature films. But he was my older brother and he was making films in high school instead of writing papers. And I thought this was a good idea. I was an actor in his early films. When I got to high school, I started making films, Super 8 movies. And it's kicked off a real interest in cinema and in watching movies. I watched all the movies I possibly could get a hold of. Randall went on to USC in the film department. He was a roommate of George Lucas's and got his career started as a film director. I went to Colgate University I was a math major. Part of the curriculum at Colgate was if you were a math major, you had to take a computer course. And there was one in computer-generated music. And I thought, well, that sounds great because I was a drummer in high school. I had a band called Froth in high school. So the idea of being able to program 132nd notes if I wanted to was pretty interesting. And creating sounds from uh, the ultimate synthesizer, which is a computer, creating these different types of sounds and noises really struck me as a fascinating conglomeration of mathematics and art. I took a course at Syracuse. Colgate has a, a winter studies program where students can go off for a month and do something off the wall. So I decided I would go and work for IBM in Syracuse. And I found out very quickly that I did not want to work for IBM <laughs> or be a salesperson for IBM products. but. I lived right below a professor at Syracuse named Judson Rosebush. <laughs> he was making films with computers. And I thought, wow, this is incredible. So Judson and I became friends. I went back to Colgate and I went to the fine arts department. I said, we could be making images with computers. They had no idea what I was talking about. And they told me to go away. And I went to the computer science department and said, you know, we could use these computers to make images. And they said, we're doing statistics here. You know, I was going back and forth and they said, well, what do you want? And I said, well, I want a computer graphics major somewhere between fine arts and computer science. And I have a professor at Syracuse who will sponsor me and give me the software and look over my shoulder. So they said, all right, just go away and do that. <laughs> and thankfully, Colgate allowed me to build my own major in computer graphics. There were no programs in the country at the time that I could get a degree in computer graphics, you know, in 1976. Upon graduation, I went and worked for Dolphin. It's funny, my mom went to the opera, I think, in New York. And, and in the opera guide, there was an advertisement for Dolphin computer animation, and she sent it to me. And I called him up. I got an interview with Alan Stanley and showed him my work from college, which is all digital. And of course, he was, you know, operating this Scanimate thing, this horrible machine for making horrible looking graphics. <laughs> and he said, well, what I want you to do is figure out how to make this machine do imagery like that. And I said, well, that's not going to happen. This is digital and that's analog. They're two different universes. But I'll do what I can, you know. So I worked there for a year. And then I got back in touch with Judson Rosebush. And he and his buddies at Syracuse were thinking that they wanted to start a company. And they wanted me to be part of it. So I said, well, the only way I'll do it is if you come to New York. Well, I'm not going to come to Syracuse and start a company. It has to be in New York. This is where all the advertising agencies are. And if we have any chance of getting any work, it would be commercial work at an advertising agency. So they all moved to New York. And we partnered with FX Unlimited, an optical house. This was critical because we didn't have any way of getting our 
our imagery onto film. Ridiculous pipeline we had involved using a computer in Maryland and shipping data to California to put the data up on a film recorder, black and white, high contrast film. And that was sent back to New York. And I would take this black and white mat passes basically and on an optical printer, do a whole bunch of processes with color filters and shoot it onto color film, multiple passes to make color images. And it was very, very slow and clumsy. It took about a whole week to see the first color image. We figured we should get a film recorder. We bought a Dicomed film recorder, which allowed us to shoot color imagery with shading onto a negative. That's about when we got our first motion picture contract, which was Tron. Robert Abel and Associates did a little bit of Tron. We did a little bit of Tron. You did the uh, bit character, right? The bit character, the opening title sequence where pieces of Tron come together and occlude this bright white light source and form the Tron character in the opening titles. And also all the bit characters that flies around says yes and no. It was the only comic relief in the movie and they probably should have had more comic relief. <laughs> we did have a good time working on Tron with Richard Taylor. He came out from LA and worked with us. Eliminating the optical printing step was a huge step for us. I mean, we still had to use optical printers to put our imagery over backgrounds because there was no digital compositing at the time, but at least we didn't have to use optical printers just to make a color image. We could shoot a color image out onto 35 negative and process it and, and get it done. That kind of fell apart, so we, we closed it. We were ahead of everybody at that point. I remember Carl Rosendahl came in from Stanford and he had a couple of shaded images that he showed us. I said, oh, that looks pretty good. But we were way, way, way ahead of that. And he formed PDI, which then became DreamWorks. You know, If we had played our cards right, we would have been in a whole different world. But anyway, we closed down digital effects. I took Bob Hoffman, who's a brilliant programmer. He converted marijuana into software. <laughs> uh, I met John Penny. John hired me to come out to LA to work at Paramount on Flight of the Navigator because we had done testing at Digital Effects for my brother on Flight of the Navigator, but Disney was not going to give a contract to a company having internal disagreements. I brought Bob and the Flight of the Navigator and brought it to Omnibus, and we executed that on Paramount on the Triple I machine, the Triple I film recorder. It's the Foonly, right? The Foonly, yeah. It was uh, nightmarish, but we got it done, and it uh, turned out really great. The film still holds up really well. Many, many people have told me that's their favorite science fiction movie of all time. You know, it's one of those classics. This is a good point to talk about the reflection mapping technique that you used and the morphing technique that you used. When Randall came to visit, he was struck by two things that we had put into commercials. One was a Tide detergent commercial where we took a bottle of Tide that we had digitized and it rotates around and changes into a map of the United States. It interpolates in, into a map of the United States. And he said, wow, that's cool. I've never seen anything like that before. He said, could we have our spaceship change shape? And I said, Sure, I'm no problem. Give us the two shapes of the ship, we'll interpolate between hover mode into a streamlined aerodynamic mode. So that was the first thing that made Randall think that computer animation was the way to approach representing the ship. And the other one was we had done some reflection mapping. Gene Miller and Bob Hoffman had written a reflection mapping software that we used. We simulated a drop of water dripping from a faucet, which had refraction and reflection on the spout, and it drips off. And Randall saw that and said, wow, could you make the spaceship reflective, like reflect the environment? Well, yeah, sure. We just shoot the environment and map it onto the spaceship and look like it's there. We did some tests at digital effects that everybody loved, but the company was spiraling down the toilet. Bob and I went to Omnibus and John Penny hired us to do that film. They put me in charge of motion picture visual effects for digital Omnibus Able when all three companies got together 
They put me in charge of that, of that division. As you know, shortly after that, the whole thing collapsed. The Canadian tax authority, I think, they were pulling some kind of shenanigans with raising money in Canada, and they were not being truthful about what their sales levels were. I remember they came into my office and said, hey, just sign this. We're working on a pilot for a TV series called Captain Power. We had only done the pilot. And the document they wanted me to sign says that we've completed 26 episodes and, and they're all done and, and they're all really great. And I said, I'm not signing this. What are you crazy? And they go, oh, geez, come on. It's, it's just a, it's a formality. I said, no, it's not enough for me. It's not a formality. I don't sign shit that isn't true. That's when I knew that things were in trouble. And then I was in Vancouver. We had a helicopter up there. We were location scouting for a film called Millennium, which is a really cool sci-fi script. We were in production, you know, scouting locations. I got a call from... DOA, and they said, uh, yeah, we're having a meeting tomorrow. You better come back down for it. I said, look, just send me the notes. They said, no, no, you should come back for this meeting. And I said, uh, okay, well, how long will I be? They said, you should bring your stuff too. And that's when I knew, oh, no, this, this is really bad, you know? And then that was that horrible meeting where 180 people just were laid off in one day. Yeah. I had no idea that you were at the top of that pyramid. Yeah, 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 it was... Yeah, it was a spooky place to be. Around about that time, actually before that, I had met Diana at SIGGRAPH in San Francisco in 85. She and I were working in our spare time building this, what turned out to be Nestor Sextone, our first uh, synthespian. I remember Nestor, your dog. Just so you yeah. know, there's somebody on the planet who actually, <laughs> who actually remembers who Nestor Sextone was named after. That's right. <laughs> Anyway, we figured out that uh, Diana could sculpt incredibly well, and so she sculpted body parts and we digitized them. And when Omnibus went out of business, we bought the Polymus 3D digitizer at an auction. Newt Bellis helped us get the money to buy that digitizer at the auction. So then we could digitize little things, and we thought, okay, we'll call it Kleiser Walzak Construction Company, and we'll build models for other companies. We had you know, good friends at Metrolite and Rhythm and & Hughes, and they all needed models built all the time, so we started building models for them. We soon got really, really bored with building models for other people and started realizing that one of the things that Diana had done while we were at Omnibus was this human figure sculpture. We digitized that. That's when we started focusing on computer-generated actors, or synthespians, as we called them. We did Nestor Sextone, and we followed that up with Don't Touch Me, which is a music video with our female character named Dozo. Again, we were pretty far ahead of the pack in terms of creating faces that could talk. Larry Weinberg helped us by writing a program. Dinah would create a neutral face and then make a mold of that so she could sculpt different phonemes of speech and clay. We had multiple faces, and then we put the same grid on all of them, which is a real pain in the ass to put the same grid on all these faces, and then digitize them. And we, there's no way we could digitize them in the same order. It's just impossible. So we would just digitize them willy-nilly. And then Larry's program, which is called Reorder, would go and compare the two databases and reorder them so that they could interpolate from one to the other. So then we had phonemes of speech below the eyes, you know, different e ah, oh, you know, like faces, kind of mouth positions. And we had different uh, eyebrow positions that we could mix and match them to create a character that would do it, basically whatever we wanted them to do. When we shot the motion capture for Don't Touch Me, we shot Perla's face. Perla Bataille was the singer that we had. Shot her face in close-up so we could scrub through the video and say, okay, on frame 454, she's making an M sound. We pull that out of our libraries and sign that. And then four frames later, it's like a ooh. You know, we just keyframe the whole thing so that her face would move and sing in sync with the original video. 
That was 88, I think, we showed Don't Touch Me. People hadn't seen anything like that before. It was just brute force back then, you know, digitizing like all night long for weeks and weeks, all these faces. It was horrific, but it turned out fun, you know. This is the great thing about what I'm trying to capture with this history of visual effects, because now everybody goes to the movies and we see lip sync all the time. It, it has become just a given. It's a button now. It's a lip sync button. <laughs> and I, I know how many CG artists had their hackles up when I just now said it's a button. <laughs> but I mean, you did that before anybody else did that. You recognized that there was a, a problem that needed solving. And however brute force the solution was, that was the first time it had been solved. That's right. I got to go back and reiterate that Frank Vitz was always a real key player for us. He figured out lots of stuff for Stargate and the Spider-Man ride, how to squinch on a dome with a fisheye lens. And he was always a key player in our ability to keep doing new things that hadn't been done before. If it weren't for Frank, we would have been lost. I think gentlemanly of you to make sure that Frank gets the credit he deserves. So, well, you know, I try to include everybody that helped us get things off the ground. You were a key guy as well, you know, for those Stargate uh, morphs. <laughs> oh my God. It was that elastic reality, right? That was elastic reality. Okay, well, we'll get there, but we're not quite there yet. So you just finished Light of the Navigator and, and you yeah. did Dozo and Don't Touch Me. Then we met this guy, Michael Van Himbergen. He was doing a TV series for KCET called The Astronomers. And what they needed was lots and lots of footage of cosmic phenomena galaxies and quasars and black holes and all these sort of illustrative animations to support their TV series. Michael looked at Don't Touch Me said, if you can do that, you can do galaxies. That's no problem. Our company and John Whitney's company, it wasn't digital productions anymore. It was his next... Whitney Demos Productions. Maybe Whitney Demos, yeah. Their company and our company worked for about almost a year and a half working for KCET, strictly doing cosmic stuff. Looking back, I'm wondering if we shouldn't have really focused on our synthespians at that time rather than getting distracted by the cosmic stuff because there was no character animation. All of our research and all the work we had done was sat on hold while we were earning money because we didn't earn any money from the synthespians. And this KCET was actually paying us, so we had to divert our attention to that. It may not have been the smartest thing to do, I don't know, looking back. I don't think there's any way of looking back on that and saying you made the wrong decision. You just got to keep making money. Right. Well, the next pivotal thing that happened was the riots in L.A., the Rodney King riots in, in L.A., and Doug Trumbull was visiting all the different computer animation companies in L.A. because he had a contract to work on a big project for the Luxor Hotel in Las Vegas. He needed a company that could do computer-generated animation. His bailiwick was computer-controlled cameras, you know, shooting models and repeatable camera pathways that he could do sort of typical motion control stuff, but he didn't really have any experience making computer-generated things, and, and he needed that for some of the ideas that he was coming up with for the Luxor Hotel. We had a meeting right here on this patio. I'll never forget it. Doug is sitting facing me is behind him and he's saying well i want to do this project but i I'm, i really want to do it in massachusetts where i'm headquartered and i said well we will pick up our company and we'll hire a bunch of people and we'll move to Massachusetts and set up with you so that your motion control and our computer generated elements can be integrated in the same building, you know, because the internet was not in a position where you could send stuff back and forth at all. So we were the only company that was willing to actually move there and move in with him. So he hired us. And by the way, Doug's sitting here and there's smoke coming, <laughs> coming up from Los Angeles in the background. And I said, yeah, let's go. Let's go now before they close the airport. <laughs> 
<laughs> we held on to our house here and we went to Massachusetts and, and set up camp with uh, Doug in Lennox. And, you know, we did that Luxor trilogy of visual effects attractions that, that we all came to know and love. <laughs> you were one of our three team leaders. We had three teams. You were head of one of them. And I guess Derry Frost was head of another one. And we had a fantastic crew of people that we brought to Lennox. And then we brought the French guys in, remember? Because <laughs> we needed the, their shader from, what was that company that Wavefront bought? Oh, TDI. TDI, yeah, their shader. We needed that shader. And we needed them to help us figure out how to create the vector-based motion blur. And it went from like six hours of frame down to like five minutes of frame. We went... <laughs> <laughs> But the other thing that was funny was the uh, PVS, the Power Visualization System that, that Serge Straczynski was programming for, and we were using it for rendering. And we thought, it's got 32 processors in it. We're going to be able to render this thing like crazy. So we got the whole thing set up, and we're watching it as the you know, 32 lights showing all the processors, and we said, okay, go. And there's like one light just blinking. I said, what's going on here? And, and they said, oh, well, that, that's loading the data for the first frame. I said, one processor? I said, yeah, one processor. So it's like, goes for like three minutes and it goes, and the, render, the frame is rendered. And then it said, yeah, but that doesn't help us. It still takes forever. <laughs> that is such a great story about that era of time. That was a really, really interesting, fun project. You know, we had three different attractions. One was a stereoscopic 35 millimeter film that was projected during their show scan type TV show, right? That stereoscopic film was projected within that ride. And then there was a vertical Vista Vision on its side, that real tall format. 70 feet tall. And then there was the curve screen in search of the obelisk, which was all the Egyptian stuff flying through the pyramid. I remember one time we went to go see the motion base. It's a separate building. The guys were just screwing around. They said, well, I wonder what would happen if we put a square wave into the horizontal. And this whole big thing goes, bam, bam, bam. <laughs> and if somebody had been on the chair, the centrifugal force would have just ripped their head off. I mean, this thing was like two-inch uh, hydraulic cables driving this thing. I was like, holy crap. Doug was very adamant that he wanted the motion base to be able to go left and right, forward, backward, up and down, but not tilt at all. It was always normal to the ground because he didn't want people to get ill. We had to build that into the, the programming of the motion base and connecting it with the motion of the cameras, you know, trying to get that all to work in orthographic pathways. It was interesting. What would you say were some of the things that we did for Luxor that represented advancements in the field of CGI? One of the things that I remember was a challenge was making contrails of missiles that were being fired at us. They had to leave like a smoke trail. Nobody had done smoke trails in that computer animation before, so we had to figure out a whole bunch of little pictures of smoke lined up with a certain amount of opacity. I remember one time we were rendering and suddenly it went from about an hour frame to like one frame was like taking 15 hours. We were, we were, the camera was like inside one of these smoke trails, looking down a whole long line of semi-transparent smoke images and just stopped the renderer. That, that was actually me. Uh, <laughs> you remember then? Yeah, yeah. And I had worked with Jim Hurahan, who was developing the particle system that eventually became Maya's particle system. And then I eventually worked with Jim at Industrial Light and Magic. He helped me with the rock monster stuff from Galaxy Quest. It was called Sprites with an image. Little right, little pictures. They're born and then they have a lifespan and they die. And as they die, they get more transparent. And right, right, right. Uh, 
So, yeah, so that was kind of the first contrails. The other thing that I remember we had to solve technically, and Surge was a big part of this, was getting our digital humans, because we had synthespians. We actually had a bunch of people in uh, video games today. They're just doing an idol. That's what it's called. We had to put them on every level of the miniature that Doug had created with the, what, Dave Hardberger and... Hardberger, yeah. Those, those guys. That was a challenge that I remember we had to figure out, and I think Surge was kind of a, a big brain behind that one. I'm getting the Luxor project and Judge Dredd intermingled in my mind. For Judge Dredd, we did the Synthespian uh, Stallone and Rob Schneider riding on the motorcycles, you know, with computer-generated so that we could have the length of flight that they needed that they couldn't shoot in London. We built Dredd's motorcycle. We built it on a gimbal so we could rock it back and forth. Diana did a, a study of of body proportions, and she determined that her body he was the closest in proportions to Sylvester Stallone's. She was the one riding on the bike, you know, with motion capture, and we were watching on the video disc a playback of the scene, and then we had, you know, guys that would rock the motorcycle forward and backward to match the scene, and we'd be tracking her body motion just to get the dynamics of riding this motorcycle going through this pathway. And it worked out pretty well. If you go back and look at that, the movement of Sylvester and Rob on the bikes, the dynamics are matching pathway of, of the bike. And that's the only way we could figure out how to do it. The funniest thing would be if you took footage of Diana and superimposed <laughs> it over the, the final footage. <laughs> yeah, that would have been good. Yeah. When that company was bought and we did Judge Dredd with them, we moved to Williamstown. We were in Lenox. We moved up to Williamstown into Mass Mocha. That's when we got the contract to do the Spider-Man ride for Universal. Invented squinching and dome projection. Frank was pivotal in, in writing all that software. He was rendering orthographic cameras facing left, forward, right, up, and down, and then doing some kind of ray tracing into the imagery to create the curved screen, the wide, super wide angle uh, imagery in stereo, so it had to be left and right. It's really complicated stuff. Makes my head hurt just to think about it. <laughs> That's why I had Frank around. <laughs> the thing that stands out about that project, I remember, was one day we were sitting around thinking about the squinching problem, and Greg Juby, who's one of our animators, he said, you know what? If we have a camera, and it's looking through like a window into a scene, and we see a perspective image through that window, that is exactly what we want to see on the screen. Yeah, but our projector is not here, it's over here. So what we wanna do is we wanna project exactly that image from here. And so the idea was you take those, you render it like inside the window, and take those corners and stretch them out to the full frame, stretch it out so that when you project it from the front, when you look at it from this angle, you see exactly that image through the window. That was the leap of imagination that Greg Juby came up with. So if you do corner pinning, if you render a, an image through a window, and then you take each point and stretch the image up into the corner so it's flat, that's what you want to project from right in front of the screen onto the screen, and it'll look right from that angle. And that was the birth of squinching. It was very, very successful because the audience is on a moving motion base, moving past the screen. So you not only have the left and right imagery giving you stereoscopic cues, but you also have a feeling of parallax. Objects in the foreground move past faster than objects in the background. So you have parallax and stereoscopy, and it made it a very compelling 3D effect. And that's part of the reason that that ride was so successful and still runs 23 years later. That's amazing. <laughs> The Spider-Man ride is still active in Orlando? Maybe 10 years ago, they re-rendered our animation files 
so they could project in video rather than 8 perf 70. They were using 8 perf film? 8 perf 70, that's what we delivered, yeah. For that long, they were using 70 millimeter film? Yeah, we had a solitaire film recorder here in the A-frame with a 65 millimeter camera, and we shot all of those Spider-Man scenes here in-house. As I say, about 10 years ago, they abandoned the film and they used 4K projectors and they re-rendered all of our stuff. The same animation. We gave them all the data, so they re-rendered it with probably with some lighting improvements. I, I'm not sure. But it's still running. 2024, it'll be 30 years that Spider-Man has been running, <laughs> running daily at Islands of Adventure. And also in Osaka, Japan. It's running there as well. That is amazing. I don't think there's any other ride that's, that's lasted that long. We had rented the Mohawk Theater in North Adams to screen our footage. We had a 70 millimeter projector because we wanted to see it on a big screen to check resolution. So we went through the whole rigmarole, put up a screen, went into this nasty, old, smelly, <laughs> abandoned theater. But we were able to see our Spider-Man imagery at full size. And along about that time, this producer named Jed Wheeler came to visit. We were going over to watch some dailies at the Mohawk. And he came along and he said, wow, this is fantastic. I'm doing this opera with Robert Wilson and Philip Glass. Robert <laughs> wants to have this 50-foot tall human foot come down on stage and land and uh, he said how the fuck am i going to build a 50 foot tall foot and how am i going to transport it you know can i what, fit through the lincoln tunnel you know how do i get it into manhattan <laughs> and he said but you guys could just make a projection on a big screen of the foot coming down we wouldn't have to build the foot and i said yeah that's true we could do that and then diana she said well we could do the whole opera in computer animation i said no 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 don't say that <laughs> <laughs> but they fell in love with this idea, and that's how we got the contract to do Monsters of Grace, which was this 74-minute-long uh, digital opera, which was uh, five-perf, 70-millimeter film projected onto a screen with Philip Glass and his ensemble playing live in the pit. It was all composed by Philip and lyrics from the Turkish poet Rumi from 14th century or something or other. You know, we were making lots of money on the Spider-Man ride, and we were losing lots of money on the uh, Monsters of Grace side. We kind of broke even. We made an impact in both areas, in ride attractions, like I say, Spider-Man's still running, and in the art world, it was the first digital opera anybody had ever seen. I'm still astounded that we were able to get that thing done, because it was 74 minutes long, stereoscopic, so it was really 148 minutes of footage that we had to get done inside of a year, and the budget was like 1.3 million or something. The only way we were able to pull it off was we hired people and we told them, we're not going to be able to pay you what you normally get paid. This is an art project. The budget's ridiculous. We may not even be able to finish it, but we're, we're going to try. So the team just jumped in full blast. So Spider-Man's on one half of the studio and Monsters of Grace is on the other. Two completely opposite ends of the spectrum, you know. Spider-Man is like crazy, you know, lasers and explosions. And, and over here we're saying just trying to get the right color blue, you know, for the background. <laughs> Working with Robert as an artist was quite challenging. He didn't really have any interest in the technology. He's used to sitting in theater and telling his technicians, you know, what percentage of pink lights on the top and what percentage of blue lights on the bottom. And then, and he just had these slow moving color things. So it was a, a real, a shock to work in that slow of a pace. Everything was super, super slow. There's a scene where this boy on a bike rides from you know, 100 yards away up to the camera. And this scene is nine minutes long. 
That's a long time for this kid to go like 30 yards on a bike in super slow motion. He said, yeah, but that's what I want. The rendering was the first big problem we had to solve. I went to Silicon Graphics. I knew that they have warehouses where they put their brand new machines and they burn them in for a month or so to find out which chips are gonna fail and then they replace those chips. These machines are then sent to the clients. And I said, well, can we use that computing time to render this opera and we'll give you a credit for it? They agreed to that. So we were able to do all of our rendering on these brand new silicon graphics machines for free. We never would have gotten the show done if it hadn't been for that. This is your genius, Jeff. <laughs> Being able to figure out how to just get this shit done. That was one that we were very lucky on. The other one I'm proud of because it exploited my optical printing background. We were having to create two 65 millimeter negatives, left eye and right eye, 74 minutes long. And the film recorder that we had, which could do 65 millimeter, it took about a minute and a half to shoot each frame. With our little calculator, we figured out it's gonna take nine months to, to shoot to shoot a show that, that we needed to have done in two months. I went and talked with people like John Hughes at Rhythm and Hughes and a couple other companies who had laser recorders, but they only shot 35, but they could do a frame in six seconds, not a minute and a half. What we did was we took our 70 millimeter frame, did an anamorphic squeeze, two to one squeeze, and inverted the lookup tables so that we would shoot on 35 millimeter film a first generation IP squeezed in super 35. So as much 35 millimeter film frame as we could possibly use, squeeze the image and scan it out in six seconds. So we got it all done. And then we took that original IP and with an anamorphic lens on an optical printer, expanded it out to a 65 millimeter negative on an optical printer. And we got it done in time. <laughs> that is an insane story. It also requires people to have an unbelievable knowledge of how film works. <laughs> IP interpositive. Right, right. Well, we skipped photochemical generation there by inverting the lookup table. So the original image was a positive image. And then when you when you shoot that onto a negative, that becomes a negative from which you can make release print for the show. You were able to get it done in time because you were able to figure out this unbelievable workaround. Right, right. <laughs> and get it back out on film. Yeah, yeah. And it looked good. It looked good. It looked. It actually really worked well. And how did Stargate come about? I think it was Michael Van Himbergen, again, our producer, that approached the Stargate team. We showed them our demo reel, which had both Luxor footage and Judge Dredd footage, and they were impressed with the work. And again, we said, well, we have a little different way of operating. We have mobile teams. We can grab people and equipment and roll them into the most optimal place for them to do their work. In this case, it probably be right next to your editorial department on Sunset. We'll put a team of people that are qualified with all our equipment. We'll roll them in, set up right next to your editorial. So when you're done editing, you can come over and see what we're doing and we'll work together. This is our new modus operandi in terms of visual effects is to have mobile units that could just like be temporarily put in a position like we did with Doug and, and Diane Perlman for Judge Dredd. We do the same thing with Stargate. We put a team of people right there in his face and get it done. So that was the Carroll Co. building right across the street from Tower Records on Sunset. And Spago. And Spago, right. Stargate was a fun project. We hired Jeff Oaken to be our visual effects supervisor. Did some really, I think, seminal work in that project. The wall of water that was the Stargate that people went through. We had a lot of fun with that. Was it called the Kersploosh or something? Kerthudge. Kerthudge. The Kerthudge, yeah. That was where we had this you know, big tank of water, and we had an air cannon. The tank was filled with water. It was about, I don't know, two feet in diameter, and we had the camera mounted on its side so we could shoot air pressure pushing down into the water to make a Kerthudge, but we didn't know how much air pressure 
to set the, the cannon on. It went from like one to 500. So let's try 100. Started the camera rolling and hit the thing. It evacuated all of the water out of the tank. Showered <laughs> down on the camera and everybody was like, it turned out to be one pound was about the right amount to make the kerthudge. A hundred just... <laughs> hundred times too much power and got us all wet, but it's pretty funny. <laughs> so that's, that's the kind of story my uh, listeners are going to love. Yeah. That's one of Jeff Oaken's favorite stories. <laughs> going into that project, you knew there were going to be a lot of pretty big technical challenges. What did you see as the big technical challenges? The transformation of the headdresses, I think, was the one that spooked me the most. You shoot the character without the headdress, and you shoot the character with the headdress, and then you have to... You remember, you did it. <laughs> you had to go in and, and create all these little sections that you would, like, then wipe off to reveal. And it had to match up, you know, the two takes had to match up, and I think the cameras were moving as well, so it was, it's very, very spooky. Going through the Stargate, we had a laser that would show us where on the person's face the, the surface would be, you know, it was a scanning laser, so as they went forward, we knew what parts should be visible and what parts should be behind the apparent water level. Uh, that stuff wasn't too bad. We had some spaceships that flew around. They were pretty straightforward. It was those morphs that, that had me most worried. I remember at the beginning we were talking about, are we ready yet to actually create these in 3D geometry and track them perfectly to movements of the character and then be able to use them with their 3D animation? And I just didn't think we were quite at that point. I didn't think we had the rendering software at a point where it would look realistic. Fortunately, Elastic Reality had just come out with this morphing software that allowed us to use the original pixels that were shot. Right. There was never any transition to a CGI object that maybe or maybe not at that point in time. All real footage. And squished and compressed and made, made to do our will. <laughs> Today, we'd probably make a different decision. We'd build a helmet and render it in RenderMan, and it'll look fantastic. Exactly. And I'm, I'm sure you did a lot of that stuff in the X-Men movies. We did indeed. Any last words before we leave Stargate and move on? What's after Stargate? I'm looking up my own IMDB.com. <laughs> I've got it open here, so let's see. Theater of Time, Luxor Live, Luxor Pyramid, Clear and Present. You know, we didn't talk about Clear and Present. Yeah, that was a blast. That was one of the most fun projects I've ever worked on. That was particularly exciting for me because I got to go up in the jet, the camera jet, uh, that was used on Top Gun. N. Lee Lacey is the guy's name who owns the jet. And it's a private jet. It's got two 35-millimeter cameras in the fuselage. One has a periscope going up through the roof of the jet with a mirror that you could rotate so you could shoot any direction above the plane. And the other had a periscope going down below so you could shoot below. It's a camera plane. We went up to Fallon Air Force Base. The Air Force lent us a pilot and F-18. So we were flying along in the F-18. We're on the radio. I said, okay, now just come by underneath our left wing for just a tracking shot. We're going to rotate the camera to show the an establishing shot of the plane approaching the drug dealer's hacienda. And so the guy came by and and he was like, we couldn't even begin to turn the camera that fast, you know. So can you can you uh, can you do it about you know maybe about a hundred two hundred feet further away so we have a chance to track with you? And see the guy out the front. Where he says, "Okay." And he goes, and I'm looking around. I see the, I see the the plane go out the window, door straight down. He's like doing a figure eight around us to get back into position. And then he came by and did it much slower. You know, we could track him. And then of course we had him drop a he had a, a dummy bomb that we 
we had him drop, but I think we replaced the bomb with the CG bomb. And then we had the shot where we wanted him to go down through the clouds, heading for the ground through the clouds, the fall CG bomb spiraling in front of the, going through the clouds. And then we revealed the, the Hacienda. Yeah, that was a fun sequence. I had no idea you were in that plane shooting that footage. Years later, I was in a, in a restaurant in New York with some friends and uh, Harrison Ford walks in with a bunch of people. Technically, I work with Harrison on, on clear and present danger, you know? Uh, yeah, 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 sure. Friends are like, they say, yeah, name dropping, you know, bullshit, you know? So Harrison walking with a girl is gonna go out and put her in a taxi. I went outside and he put her in a taxi and I said, so Harrison, I just wanna say hi. My company did that smart bomb in the clear and present danger scene. Oh man, that was the coolest shot in the film. <laughs> and so, so we come in, he's got his arm around me. <laughs> Brings me back to my table. He says, good to see you, man. <laughs> and my, my friends were like. <laughs> and, and of course, that was before the days of iPhones when somebody would get a little selfie. Harrison was cool. He had not met me before, but he he did a nice thing for me, bringing me back in and, and shaking my hand and saying, good to see you again. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great little story. The very few times that I've actually met Hollywood stars, they've all been just so nice like that. Some more than others, but uh, <laughs> but for the most part, yeah. Son of the Mask, yes, yes. Did you work on that? I did a, a bunch of shots at ILM of the baby, particularly the shots where he's wearing the yellow kind of fuzzy outfit and he's got a rattle. The dog comes in and he jumps through the ceiling and is yeah, rip yeah, off. Yeah. We did the, uh, the conception sequence. Which was not released in the United States release. Yeah, it's so funny because we had these sperm, these, these green sperm. They're all racing to get to the egg. There's all these other sperm, white sperm, like regular sperms, the green sperms and the white sperm. They're all racing to get to the egg. And we sent the sequence into to the studio. The studio showed it to the MPAA and they said, uh, well, that's going to be an R. And, and so they came back to us and I said, well, I cut out like half of the sperm. So we rendered it again with half the sperm. And they said, it's R. <laughs> all right, take out all of the white sperm and just leave the green sperm. And we sent it again. They said, what part of no sperm don't you guys understand? Any sperm in there is going to be an R. And so they cut it. They cut it from the, <laughs> from the U.S. release. It shows up in the DVD and in the international releases, but it doesn't show up in the U.S. theatrical release. Was there anything CGI-wise that was intriguing about that? Well, it was kind of a, a homage to uh, a squash and stretch type animation, you know, the old cell animation where the eyeballs would stretch out. So we were trying to tip of the hat to the old animators. Ab absolutely. Tex Avery, I think, is the... Uh... Avery, exactly. Then there was surrogates, which was where we took Bruce Willis and euthanized him, made him look younger. In the movie, he's supposed to be in his 50s, as he is in real life. The conceit of the movie is that everybody has a robot that lives their life out in the real world. They lie in bed watching what's happening through their robot's eyes. And the robot can look 30 or 25, you know. So we had to take footage that we shot of Bruce Willis and make him look young and 30-ish. And we went in and did some degobbling, getting rid of his chin, his waddle, smoothed out his eyes and made his earlobes shorter, you know, smoothed out his whole face, made him look young, made him look 30. And we delivered a lot of shots. We developed a sort of a pseudo AI approach, you know, where we'd clean up one frame and then we would apply that same series of uh, modifications to subsequent frames. So we didn't have to do it frame by frame. We could get the computer to kind of get the hang of it and help us out. We did a lot of research to be able to do that on a lot of shots. This is just another example of you in your career predating 
the things that have become common like 10, 15 years later, the work that ILM did for the Irishman, right? That's what it was. It was using AI techniques. It was machine learning to do age regression. And here you are doing that like, what, 15 years earlier? At the time, I thought, you know, we could start a company to just do this, you know, because Hollywood is so vain and actors want to remain young looking as much as possible. Yeah, but we won't be able to show our work because there'll be contracts that say you can't show before and after. Anyway, there's a company that does nothing but age work. Uh, they just can't show their demo reel. <laughs> So then the next one was Raw One, which is an Indian project. This was when we decided that we didn't want to run a visual effects company anymore, although we did a bunch of shots on that show at Synthespian Studios. I didn't want to gear up to like a lot of people and a lot of equipment to do a big show. We did the most difficult parts of that show, which is the cubic transformations. We worked with Hellgate Matthias, who wrote software for us in ICE, which was part of Softimage. Cubes changing from one thing into another. They hired me to be the supervisor. I spent six months in India and three months in London shooting this film. Had a lot of fun. It made me realize that I'm much better off being a supervisor than running the whole show and being responsible for everything because that was making me just go crazy. The Indians could worry about all their personnel and hardware and software and budgeting. And we would just do a very small set of very complicated shots and I'd be paid as a supervisor. Since then, I've been really working only as a supervisor and not really hiring people and setting up teams in LA or anywhere. It's better for my brain to just do what I do and not have to be you know, running a company. You seem to have just navigated these waters really well over the course of your career, figuring out how to scale a company, how to scale what you personally do. I realized that we miss talking about X-Men. <laughs> Oh yeah, X-Men, sure. The character of Mystique, played by Rebecca Romaine, needed to be able to transform from her blue or purplish, scaly, red-haired superhero character into anybody else. She had the ability to transform. And so 20th Century Fox wanted a signature effect for this transformation. They wanted it to be really, really cool. This is, again, Frank Bitts working with us. We studied her latex costume that was glued to her, and it had all these little scales. And so we designed a transformation that would travel across her body. Her scales would come out of her body, they sort of flutter a little bit, and start spreading out almost like a wave in a football stadium. The flutters would come out, and then there'd be a fleshy part that would separate out, and inside that would be the incoming texture of whoever she's going to be impersonating. If it was like a guy in a business suit, the fleshy part would be revealed, and then this would split apart, and you see a suit being revealed. And this transformation would travel across her body until she had completely transformed from one to the other. We didn't want to do a morph because everybody's seen morphing forever. So we wanted it to be more of a sequential thing that would look like a mold growing across her. So it was like 18 steps to get all this to work. And we had to get the outgoing Rebecca character in the same position as the incoming character so that it would match. So one day that was really kind of tricky was we had a scene where Magneto, was going to transform into Mystique. We shot Mystique first. She was in a police detention area sitting back like this. She's going to transform into Magneto from this position. We shot this version of her. Then, of course, Sir Ian McKellen uh, comes in to shoot his half of it. And I say, okay, in this shot, you're going to be sitting back like this with your arms back like this. And he says, no, Magneto would never be in that position. I said, yeah, well, you're not really Magneto. See, this is Mystique transforming into Magneto. And he says, no, this is in front of a whole crew. You know? 
when Mystique transforms, she transforms into Magneto. She doesn't transform into somebody who looks like Magneto. She transforms into Magneto. And he would never sit that way. I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> During the transformation, her CG version leaning forward to match into the position that Sir Ian would allow me to shoot him in. <laughs> we did lots and lots of those transitions for the first three X-Men movies. One, two, and three. They weren't called one, two, and three, but they... The first three ones. And then after that, they did it all in-house at Sony. Before I forget, I do want you to talk a little bit about, and I hope you'll love this, talk about the A-frame. Diana and I were living in Laurel Canyon and renting a place, and the people told us they wanted to sell the house that we were renting, and we didn't want to buy that house. So we went out driving around to try and find some other place to live, and we got lost in the hills, and we came up this Mulholland Highway, and we passed this A-frame house, and I thought, what a stupid-ass house. You know, there's no snow in Hollywood. You know, there's no snow in L.A. Why would you have an A-frame that's designed for snow? It turned out to be a dead end. So I turned around, came back, and I said, well, you know, it's kind of an interesting-looking house. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw some bushes in front of the house, and I saw something behind the bushes. The guy that owned the house wanted to sell it, and he lived down in Long Beach. He didn't want it to be empty, so he let some 20-year-old kids stay there for free. And what they did is they took the for sale sign and they hid it behind the bushes so nobody would see it. But I saw it <laughs> and I stopped the car. I got out and moved the bushes. I wrote down the number and called the guy and that's how we got the house. Actually, it was not. This was when I was at Omnibus and I was director of the motion picture visual effects division or whatever. And I had, you know, three projects, Millennium and Captain Power coming into the studio and I was going to get paid a 6% commission on the, on the gross of these projects coming. It was going to be a whole shitload of money. So I said, yeah, we can buy this house. And I said, but I said to the guy, well, you know, we need to just rent it for a while until, you know, the money starts coming in, then we'll buy it. So he said, okay, well, I'll rent it to you for a few months. And then I'll that one out of business, right? <laughs> we just talked about, so we're like, hamana, hamana. What do we do now? Amazingly, out of the blue, this project came in, an animation to teach Japanese school children how to multiply two fractions together. So it involves, you know, A over B and C over D, moving these little things around. And we had to do like five minutes of animation, like, you know, two weeks to do it. The guy said, the budget is $30,000, which is exactly what we needed for the down payment on the house. <laughs> so we said, we'll do it. So we stayed up all night cranking out this animation for this Japanese thing, got $30,000 and, and put the down payment and got the house. We were so lucky. To find the house, to find out that it was for sale, and to have suddenly $30,000 coming from nowhere to pay the down payments so that we could get in here. It's astounding. I got to say, Jeff has not once mentioned that this house was directly underneath the Hollywood sign. Oh, yeah. It is the closest house to the Hollywood sign. And that band from the 60s, The Association, lived here. They Never My Love and Windy and Cherish. All those sort of sappy love songs from the 60s were written here at the A-frame. And... Michael Van Himbergen, our producer, says that he used to work for Graham Nash, and he says that David Crosby met Graham Nash at a party in this house. They were introduced by Mama Cast, and they were all doing acid. <laughs> that's the folklore. I can't really prove that, but that's what I've heard, and I, I believe it. <laughs> I believe it, too, and those are the stories that I've always told, because <laughs> I got to work in that house. We were doing clear and present danger. We were set up downstairs and outside, and sure. it's just an incredible incredible place and it's been the site of a number of parties during SIGGRAPHs in Los Angeles. Yes indeed Larry Weinberg was married here we've had weddings we've had film shoots lots of parties the guys from PSI the Swiss speaker manufacturers 
party every year during the National Association of Music Marketers, the music show, until COVID had been every year, they would come here and have a big party for all their clients here. Yeah, we've had some great parties. It lends itself to that sort of thing. <laughs> oh, wait, wait a second. That's my son. Let me just say, hey, Jackson, I'm doing a, a Zoom call right now. So let me call you back a little bit later. Okay. Uh, there's something I want to ask you about, uh, about building a website for me. I have a new new company I want you to help me with. So let's chat later on today. Okay. All right, see ya. Okay, well, I think I just got a scoop on some news. <laughs> well, during the pandemic, I've been sort of scratching my head, what am I going to do? No film work. There's no supervisory work that I could find. So I just looked around and I said, well, I'll build a uh, DIY Atmos mixing studio in my garage. So that's what I've done. I've got a 12 channels of sound and mixing in Atmos. Uh, the Bone Daddies that that was the band that did Don't Touch Me, our first film. They came up, they're still, they're still out there. They came up here and we recorded 14 songs in three days in the A-frame, and now I'm remixing them in Atmos. It's a blast, it's having, having a, so much fun. Something I can do by myself, I don't need anybody else, I don't need any support. I can just dig into it and learn about sound mixing in 3D. Wow, there's so much there. One, the band from Don't Touch Me. <laughs> there's a really cool system now called Sound Particles, which is a particle system and each particle you can associate a soundtrack with. So you have a microphone, like an Atmos microphone, seven channel microphone, and you can have a particle floating around and doing whatever you want. And then it's emitting a soundtrack, whatever sound you associate with it. What I'm moving towards is having a routine where 3D objects that are emitting sounds, the sound gets mixed automatically. You have a whole environment of sound emitting objects and all the sound is coming in from the right angles. When you're watching animation, the sound is linked to it in 3D. But I need to wear headphones. You can take an Atmos mix and render it with binaural audio so you can listen to it on headphones and you have a pretty good 3D replication in headphones. And then anybody who has an Atmos setup would obviously be able to hear it precisely the way it's supposed to sound. But the idea is in a movie theater, you could have, you know, automatically link 3D animated objects with 3D sound, and you wouldn't have to have somebody go and try to mix it and match it. It would be automatically linked to it. Kind of fun stuff. This is great because what you're doing in your later years now is using your ears more than your eyes. <laughs> exactly. When we were working together, you know, back in Massachusetts or in, in LA, we had like 85 people working for the company, and, and I, I needed to have a quarter of a million dollars in the bank every two weeks to make payroll. And it's just like, ah! <laughs> it's the most terrifying thing. Because you know what happens when you miss payroll. Bad things happen. <laughs> Especially with all the visual effects work going to Canada for the tax rebates or to Asia for the lower labor rates. Uh, I figured I'm not going to be competing with uh, Sony and ILM and DreamWorks building a big studio to do animation. So I've just been really working as a supervisor, you know, and I can just do what I do best, which is know how to talk between the technical and artistic people. As we're heading toward the end of this, reflect on Jeff Kleiser, his life. Where do you see yourself in the, the history, the evolution of the computer graphics industry. I like to think that we tilled some new soil along the way. We were always trying to find solutions to problems that had not yet been solved. Back in the olden days, from year to year, SIGGRAPH to SIGGRAPH, there was a real remarkable difference in the progress of imaging, of rendering images. Each year, you could see a big step, and everybody would applaud the big step. It's not like a big jump in quality level anymore. All the difficult problems, I think, have been solved, and it's now more of a volume of effects. Look at films today, and it's just overwhelming how much stuff is in there, how much work is put into it. 
but I don't go, oh God, I've never seen that before <laughs> as frequently as we used to. In terms of my role, I like to think that we did our best to work with a small team of rock stars and hopefully people look back and say, oh, I remember that Flight of the Navigator, that was cool. Or Spider-Man ride, that was cool. I like to think people look back and say, well, he did some cool stuff. <laughs> That's great. This was exactly what I was hoping it would be. Great. Dude, I can't tell you how much I appreciate this. Do let me know when you're going to be in L.A., though, because I want to. I want you to hear this room. It sounds fantastic in here. I can't wait because I'm not focusing as much on computer graphics anymore, but I still play keys. Just restrung our grand piano and tuned it, so uh, you're all set. Come on over. All right, I'll do that. <laughs> all right, thanks, Jeff. I really appreciate this.